Gosh, we really do miss singing with you guys in this place, but we will take virtual worship over nothing. Uh, Let's close our worship real quick uh, with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our ability to sing in all places. Thank you for our ability to worship in all places, that our worship and our praise is not bound to a building, uh, that it's not bound to a time or place. Uh, We just thank you for our church and that we're all over the place, but we are still unified and that we sing together and we rejoice together. And so we pray this morning uh, that you speak to us and that you would fill our homes and fill our places wherever we might be at. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hello, CLC family, and welcome to Church Online once again. My name is Christian Hessling. I'm the high school director and the production director here at the Christian Life Center, and we want to wish you a happy Mother's Day weekend. This is it. This is all for you guys. Uh, For any moms out there, grandmothers, motherly figures, role models, aunts, whatever it may be, uh, we just want to celebrate you today, and we want to thank you for showing us what it's like to love Uh, like Jesus. And we also understand that this day comes uh, with mixed emotions for some of you, uh, perhaps painful emotions, um, maybe painful memories. And with that, we just want to say we mourn with you. And if there's anything we could do at all, please do not hesitate to reach out to us by emailing us at info at clcfamily.church. But once again, we are so glad that you guys are hanging in there. You're tuning in every week, and it's wonderful. We've been able to interact with you online. And gosh, we really, really do miss being with you in person, but we know that it's going to come soon, hopefully. Um, But until then, we are so glad that you're joining us online. Um, So we are in week three of our series, Philippians, the journey to joy. And we continue in this journey, and there's never been a time where we've needed more joy uh, because baseball's not been on TV at all, right? And I know, uh, especially the moms today are mourning that their husbands and families aren't watching uh, baseball. Uh, But in all seriousness, this is definitely a season that we need joy, right? We've not been able to see people. We've been isolated. And so I find that this series is very fitting for that purpose. Um, So today we are in chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, to Philippi. Um, But before we jump into the letter, I want to share some information about what the children's ministry is doing uh, during kind of the weekends for our kids in the congregation. Um, So they're taking a break from the Gospel Project um, because it doesn't cover all of Philippians. And so there's new resources available to you guys that, hey, I really encourage you to go check them out. I've seen them on Facebook and stuff, and it's been actually really fun to watch as a 26-year-old. So I'm sure your kids would enjoy it. So every Friday at 1 p.m., our Kids Zone on our Kids Zone Facebook page, and you can find the link right here on the screen. Uh, we post a Kids Zone sneak peek video to give you a look ahead at the weekend's lessons. In each video, Miss Megan will use science experience and uh, science experiments and object lessons to get everyone thinking about the upcoming Bible lesson. And then every Friday at 3 p.m. on the Kids Zone Facebook page, there will be a family worship guide, which includes ideas for worship, games, crafts, as well as Bible discussion questions that are all connected to that week's lesson. It also includes a downloadable coloring and activity page that you can engage in as well. And in addition, if you want to watch a video, uh, there's video curriculum on Philippians. All you have to do is go to rightnowmedia.org, make an account, and you could search their video, Mr. Phil Show, Philippians, Where Does Joy Come From? That's the question we're probably all asking right now. And that's, once again, on rightnowmedia.org. You can go to the church website at clcfamily.church. Scroll down to the bottom, and you can see that you could sign up for Right Now Media right there on the home page. And if you have any questions about any of that, because that's a lot, uh, you can go ahead and email Megan Leff or Jeanette Bowdle, uh, and their email addresses are in the caption of this live stream. All right, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get started. I'm going to start with a story that I wanted to share. So a couple days ago, uh, my wife, I was looking for a, a beard trimmer because my beard was getting really long. I called it the quarantine beard. And I was looking for my beard trimmer, and I couldn't find it. So my wife and I were looking throughout the apartment for it because, you know, husbands can't find anything on their own. They have to have their wives with them. That's how it works. I'm pretty sure the Bible talks about that, too. Um, But we were looking for my beard trimmer, and we were uh, in the closet, and I was looking in an old suitcase that I'd used maybe about a year ago. And, um, And as I was looking in it, a piece of paper fell out of it. And so I opened it up, and it was actually a love letter. And, um, and I was thinking, like, 
who's this from? Like, what is this for? And I was really confused, and I didn't know what it was going on, and I had to explain to my wife, I don't know what this is. And then I, I remembered, my memory was jogged as I kind of looked over it, uh, and I remembered a year ago, I had found this piece of paper. And uh, what happened was, um, a year ago, I was with my ministry team that I served, uh, the church that I served at before I came here from Tennessee. We were serving in Kensington, Philadelphia. And actually, we're going to put a picture up on the screen. This is Kensington, Philadelphia. In fact, specifically, this is the L, the Elevated Railway in Kensington. And I remember finding this letter in Kensington as I was serving with my team in Philadelphia. We're just walking the streets, serving the community, and I found this letter. And if you know anything about Kensington, you know it's a really, really broken place, right? Um, at least you see the brokenness in more visible ways than you might other places, right? Uh, Kensington's a place that uh, has its battles with drugs and crime and issues related to those things. Um, and a lot of times people say, you know, uh, Kensington might be a godless place, right? Uh, surely good things do not come out of Kensington. In fact, a lot of the locals said that nothing good happens under the L, under the, under the elevated railway. But that's where we got to stay for the week uh, with a the ministry there. And so as we were walking under the L one day uh, with our team, just kind of serving the community and handing out food and care packages, I stumbled across a letter that was on the ground. And I picked it up, and, uh, you know, I looked around. It didn't look like it belonged to anyone. It was one part of a letter because it's missing some pages. Uh, yes, I did read it, and I know what some of you are thinking. Christian, you're not supposed to do that. Um, but I didn't know the—didn't see the owner around, and I figured, hey, let's just check it out, see uh, what kind of story this is, right? Because Kensington's full of stories. And so, um, so I did read it, and I realized, gosh, this is, this is a love letter. Uh, and very uh, interestingly, actually, it was um, written in prison. And I actually have it right here, and I'm not going to read it for you. Um, but we just found it in the street of Kensington. And I think I kept it and put it in my suitcase that day because um, I felt like it's a light of hope in the darkness type thing, right? Where here we have this, this letter of encouragement, this love letter, um, written by someone actually in prison uh, to someone in Kensington. And I just thought that it showed a lot of, you know, the humanity that you can still find in a place that's so broken. Uh, yeah, just broken, right? And so I kept that um, because um, I just felt like, hey, this highlights the humanity once again. It's something, a light and a dark place. And so I held on to that, and we stumbled upon it this week, which was really fitting because we're talking about a letter written from prison to another people to encourage them, Right? And this letter that I found is kind of very similar in that it's written from someone who had been incarcerated for the purpose of encouraging someone else. And so we find ourselves in the book of Philippians, which is a letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi. Um, and so Gary started this series with that for us the past couple of weeks, and I'm going to repeat a couple of the things that he said. But once again, this is a letter to the church in Philippi. If you know anything about Philippi, Philippi was kind of a, a, a developed colony of Rome, and so it was a very popular place. And so that's important to understand because Paul's trying to write some good theology because he knows there's going to be a lot of foot traffic going through Philippi. And so he wants to make sure if people are coming to this town, if they're visiting your church, and if they get a taste of this gospel, let's just make sure we clarify what it is that the gospel is, right? And so he lights, writes this letter to encourage them. And this is the first church that he founded. So he has a lot of fond memories and connections with this church, right? And so this church is relatively healthy compared to Corinth and Galatia, but he's still writing some pretty important things that they have to consider uh, as a, a new young church. And so the major theme, I'm all, I love themes. If you, you know, watch movies or uh, read books, you're always trying to, you know, identify the themes. So I want to highlight kind of the major theme in the book of Philippians. And it's this, it's encouragement. He's encouraging the church in Philippi to live their lives as citizens of heaven. He's encouraging them because he's in prison, right? Their leader is in prison. And so he's reassuring them everything's going to be okay. And he is encouraging them to face the persecution uh, that they are dealing with. Or th he's encouraging them in the face of the persecution, right? And also against evildoers, which we will get to in just a moment. 
Well, let me be honest. I'm going to start off with this. Uh, Philippians 3 is kind of a strange passage. Uh, you know, it's not something that I would give to maybe a new convert or a new believer, anyone who's kind of early on in their journey with Christ, because it's kind of strange. You read it and you scratch your head and you're like, what the heck is Paul getting at here? What is Paul writing about? Um, so bear with me as we journey through that. But I also want to mention this. While it is a strange chapter, it's also a really profound chapter. You see, Philippians 3 is all about making your life count. And who doesn't want to make their life count, right? No one wants to waste their life. And so for that reason, I invite you to tune in as we try and figure out how is it that, how is it that we can make our lives count? Because Philippians invites us to consider that. And so I invite you to lean in as we journey through this together and ultimately as we embark on our journey to joy. So we're going to start in Philippians 3. We are, in, once again, in the third chapter. We're going to be covering verses 1 to 21 today. But we're going to start in Philippians 3, verse 1. Here it is. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, and for you it is a safeguard. I love how Paul starts this chapter um, because he's literally in the middle of the book of Philippians and he says, finally. I mean, you know he's a pastor because a lot of pastors preach and they're like, I'm going to wrap up and then they go for 30 more minutes, right? This is what Paul is doing in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice. And here, right out of the gate, we see one of our themes, right? Joy. We see this theme of joy, the journey of joy that we are embarking on. And it's interesting because this is not a phrase that we use often today, right? Like no one goes to Walmart and when they see that they've restocked the toilet paper, they're like, oh, rejoice, the toilet paper is there. Like no one says that. No one says, oh, rejoice, my Amazon package was delivered a day early. Like, oh, rejoice. No one says, rejoice, the kids are doing chores. I'm sure all of you say that because your kids do chores all the time. Uh, But you get the idea. It's kind of an interesting phrase, an interesting word. But let me tell you, it is such a unique and beautiful word. Because in Greek, uh, the word is kairo, which means rejoice or be glad, all right? But it's interesting because rejoice and the Greek word for grace are actually cognates, which mean they sound very familiar. And so, uh, the, the Greek word, once again, for rejoice is kairo, and the Greek word for grace is charis. Charis. I hope I'm saying that correct. So there's a chance, some suggest, that when reading this word, kairo, the reason for their rejoicing would be at the forefront of their mind. God's grace. Charis, right? And as we know, grace means God's unmerited favor. God's gift to us, God's gift of forgiveness, God's gift of love, uh, God's gift of salvation that we cannot earn. It is a gift to us, right? And so when Paul's saying, rejoice, Cairo, they might be thinking, Caris, we are going to rejoice because of grace. In fact, one theologian put it this way, and I actually love it a lot. Uh, I actually really like this phrase. He says, the act of rejoicing is simply delighting in God's grace. The act of rejoicing, Cairo, is simply delighting in God's grace, Caris, right? We find peace and joy in the gift that God has given us. That is reason enough to rejoice. And that phrase, when Paul's inviting them to rejoice, it means a lot more when you remember their circumstances, right? Because Paul is in prison. And he's writing this to a people that are persecuted. And now us, a people in pandemic, are receiving the same invitation to rejoice, delight in God's grace, delight in God's love, delight in God's gift. And remember, he's got an ongoing relationship with this church, which, uh, uh, which explains why he's saying, hey, I'm going to repeat this same message to you, okay? So the passage continues in verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. 
See, this is why I wouldn't recommend reading this passage for like a new believer. If someone's like, hey, what, where should I start? I would not give them Philippians 3 because it's confusing. It's all get out, right? Uh, he's using words like dogs and flesh and evil workers and circumcision and boasting. And you look at that and you're like, what is going on here? What is this book, right? Um, but what I want to remind you is that this is a letter. And so oftentimes in letters, they are referring to a specific situation, right? And so that's what Paul is doing here. He's writing to the church in Philippi about a specific situation. In fact, this is what was happening. Once again, this is Paul's first church that he founded. So he would preach at this place. Uh, but what started happening is he would preach. And then after he would preach, this other group of people would come in. And they were known as the Judaizers. Uh, and so they would come in. He would preach a gospel of grace by faith. That's it. Grace by faith. All you have to do is have faith, and God's grace will take care of the rest. And so he would preach this gospel and leave. Then the Judaizers would come in and start to talk to these new converts, the new Gentiles. They'd say, hey, yeah, Paul was right. You know, grace and faith, but you also have to be circumcised. Like, that's, that's what you have to do. Because in Judaism, in that time, it was a practice. Circumcision was an ex— in, uh, let me see, an external act for an internal faith, right? And so what the Judaizers would do is they would come in and say, hey, hey, that's great and all, but you have to be circumcised. That's the only way that this is going to work. And so for the Judaizers, salvation came about by faith, grace, and circumcision. They were masking a gospel of grace and faith alone. They were changing Paul's message that he gave to this new church. And so Paul rips into them. I mean, he throws so much shade that the Judaizers got to take their sunglasses off. You know what I'm saying? Uh, what he does here is he calls them out. He calls them dogs and evil workers. See, a lot of times in that context, people would call Gentiles dogs because uh, they didn't adhere to maybe the same dietary food laws. And so dogs, as you know, they'll eat just about anything, right? They don't think about what they're eating. They'll just eat about anything. And so um, the Judaizers would call Gentiles dogs because they, did, they weren't clean, right? And so here, Paul turns it back on them. He says, you are the dogs. You are the evil workers. You are those who mutilate the flesh literally and needlessly, and they know exactly uh, what he's talking about. And so he's talking about the Jewish Christian missionaries in this time, and he's calling them out for the evil that they are doing. He's calling them out for changing a gospel of grace and faith to a gospel of our having to do something, right? And so he's very serious about it in this moment, which is why he's insulting them. And once again, I didn't mention this, but dog is actually a really derogatory, offensive, uh, offensive term in that time. And so the fact that he's calling them out in this way, in a letter that the church will read, uh, is pretty significant. And Paul's trying to tell this church, have confidence in God's work on the cross, not yours to your bodies. And we see that when he says, we boast in Christ Jesus, having no confidence in the flesh, having no confidence in what you do. We're having utmost confidence for what Jesus did on the cross. And so he's inviting them to consider what it is like to really live by a faith or by a gospel of grace and faith alone. And he's criticizing them for adding to the equation, for adding something else that is not necessary, that disregards the work that has already been done on the cross. And let's be honest, like, I don't blame the Judaizers for thinking this way, right? I feel like we live in a world that's very performance-based, right? Um, and so, you know, we live in a world where we have performance reviews, we have grades, uh, we have, let me see what else I got on my list. Um, performance reviews, grades, uh, our jobs, you know, we get reviewed for that. We have accolades. Um, things are all based on how we perform, right? We see it everywhere we go. Even kind of what we put on Facebook, it's almost graded by how many people like it and comment on it, correct? And so we start to then take this, and I think this is what the Judaizers did. We start then to take um, this idea that we have to perform and we apply it to uh, the salvation of grace and faith alone. And so we say, yeah, you know, it is by grace, it is by faith, but, you know, I also have to perform. I have to do some stuff. I can't just float on through, right? I, I have to perform. 
And this is not a reason to rejoice, right? This is not a reason to delight in God's grace because if we're saying that we are responsible for our salvation, we're going to mess up and fail every time, right? It's not by our own merit. And when we try and make it by our own merit, we will fail just about every single time. Therefore, Paul reminds them that it is by grace and faith alone. We have absolutely no confidence in the flesh. And we only boast in the work of Christ. We have confidence in God's grace. Charis, hence our ability to rejoice. Cairo, right? So then he uh, transitions and he uses himself as an example. And I think it's interesting because he says like, don't find any, you know, don't boast. Don't have any confidence in the flesh. But let me give you my whole resume. And uh, in the next section, we learn more about that. In in 4b to uh, verse 6, he says, If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's saying, don't boast, don't brag or anything, but also let me show you my resume. And there's a reason why he does that. But first, let's go through the resume. Let's see how qualified this guy is. He starts off, he's an Israelite, which is the highest name for the people of God, right? When the, when the nation was founded, they were the Israelites. And so he says, I'm an Israelite. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which was pretty customary um, for those people at that time to do that on the eighth day, which once again, that's an outward sign of an inward faith. And so they are expressing that faith in that way. And his family was godly because they followed it. Uh, he's a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Likely the parents uh, held on to Hebrew culture and the language. And so Paul's very familiar with that. He also mentions, hey, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you know anything about the tribe of Benjamin, um, that's where Israel's first king came from, right? King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And ironically, Paul, before he was named Paul, his name was Saul, right? And the tribe, this is the tribe that helped rebuild the temple once they came back from exile in Babylon. And the tribe that did not swerve from God. And if that's not enough, he's also a Pharisee, which means he knows the book inside and out. He knows the law inside and out, the very law that the Judaizers Judaizers are trying to force the Gentiles to adhere to, right? And he knew it, and he obeyed it all his life up until this point. And he was not just a Pharisee, but he was a zealous Pharisee, because out of what he thought was obedience to God, we know this, he persecuted Christians. He killed people. He went to great lengths because of the faith that he had. And of course, eventually he realized that was not what God uh, would have him do. But regardless, he has got a resume. And he even says he was obedient, blameless. He did everything right. And so this is the guy that overachieves in everything. And Paul is it. And so he's saying, he's not trying to brag, but what he's doing is this. If anyone is credentialed, if anyone has a reason to be confident If anyone has done enough good works, if anyone has reason to boast, it is me by far, by a landslide. And he was credentialed. Like, he was right. People would look at that and be like, okay, actually, we can't compete with that. He's the most overqualified person. But he doesn't share that, once again, to boast. He does it for this reason. In verse 7, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. He's doing this. He's saying, let me tell you this. I'm the most credentialed person in here. As the one who has reason to both, I want to tell you this. None of it matters. I count it all as a loss, wasted, unnecessary because of the work that Christ has done, right? David Platt is a pastor, uh, I think in Virginia, and he says it this way. He says everything that Paul had done up until this point was a big fat zero. All of these credentials of life, uh, everything comes out to a big fat zero. None of it matters. None of it counts. These are, as he calls, the treasures of a wasted life. Because at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, they bear no weight or impact for us, for how God views us or our salvation, right? And Paul continues even going further in verse 8. More than that, I regard 
Everything is lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So here in verse 8, he's, he's saying it again. He's like, let me say it again. Look at all my credentials, and as the one who is the most credentialed person here, I want to tell you that none of this matters. Anything that you can do does not matter regarding your salvation, regarding how it is that God views you, right? And he even goes as far to say that they are rubbish. They are trash. In fact, the Greek word uh, was more similar to dung. Like, it is, it is not good at all, right? In fact, some people who would interpret and translate the Bible in the past tried to soften the blow of that word because of how crass it was. He says, I call them rubbish because the only thing they are capable of doing is distracting me from Christ and from receiving his free gift of grace. So I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. I count them as trash so that I can be careful not to miss out on the gift of grace. What he's trying to do here is he's going back to what's happening in Philippi, right? The Judaizers are preaching a gospel of faith, grace, and works. Circumcision, right? And Paul is saying, hey, as the most credentialed person in here, as the person who's following the book, who's following everything, let me tell you this. That is not true. It is a gospel of faith and grace. And so he's really trying to make sure that the church in Philippi is getting this while he's locked up in prison, right? He's saying, it is by faith and grace alone. It is by faith and grace alone that you are saved. You need to do nothing more. And therefore, as a result of that, I invite you to rejoice. Cairo, right? Delight in the grace of God, not in your own abilities, not in the ceremonies of the Jewish law, but delight in God's gift of salvation for you, right? That's part of the journey to joy, is delighting in the grace of God. How freeing is that, right? That we don't have to slave to be perfect, that we don't have to uh, do all of this work because God has done this for us, right? David Plott uh, identifies a commonality in these things that Paul listed in his resume as well. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that I thought I'd share it. He says, uh, the one thing that all of these things have in common that Paul lists is that they're all really good things, right? He's faithful. That's really awesome. He knows the text. That's awesome. He's living out his faith in ways that people aren't, right? He's celebrating his heritage, his origins. Like, these are not bad things, but yet they are treasures of the wasted life. They don't count for anything next to grace. They don't amount to anything at the end of our lives next to the work that Christ has done. The only treasure in life that counts is Christ, right? Christ is greater than all of the good things in the world piled together. And I'm not trying to suggest uh, that it's bad that we have those things, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, he even gives us examples in his, in his understanding of Philippians 3. Uh, he says, Bible study, wasted. Nice cars, wasted. That great job that you've always wanted, wasted. Teaching the Bible, wasted. Bringing your kids to church, wasted. People living morally upright lives, wasted. If it ends there, it's wasted. We're reminded of that passage in Matthew 7, right? We see those people come to Christ and they say, didn't we do all of these things? Like, we served people. Uh, we helped the poor. We gave clothes to the needy. Like, didn't we do all of those things? And what did Christ say, right? But I didn't know you. All of these good things are wasted if they end there. We become so preoccupied with the good things that we forget the best thing, right? We forget a gospel of grace alone that Christ did all of the work on our behalf and all we are responsible to do is receive, right? And again, I want to highlight these aren't bad things. 
But all of these uh, credentials and actions, they don't do anything for us in regards to salvation. These works and actions don't amount to anything. Only Christ does. And therefore, as Paul said, we have no confidence in the flesh. (laughs) We have no confidence in what we can do, but we only have confidence in Christ. And therefore, we're invited to rejoice, to delight in this gift that God gives us, to delight in in grace. We rejoice. And so what Paul does is he corrects their theology in this moment, in this first part of the chapter, and he wants to make sure that they get it right because he knows a lot of people are traveling through that town. And also he just wants to make sure that they're following the correct gospel, right? That they're not listening to these ideas that the Judaizers are preaching. And so he corrects it, and then he gives them an invitation to respond. Paul would have us do the following as a result of the gospel of grace and faith. He continues in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. And if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As a result of this gospel, Paul has a new objective, not to do what the Judaizers are suggesting, to work and to try and earn our salvation with actions, but rather it is to know Christ, therefore participate in his death and resurrection. To die to ourselves, to give ourselves our lives to God so that we may experience life everlasting. And I like how he kind of characterizes it. He, he kind of characterizes it like it's a journey, right? The, the idea of becoming something. We are in the process of being shaped and being formed into something that we currently aren't, right? And so this is where the journey to joy comes in, right? We're not going to knock it out in one weekend. We're not going to arrive so quickly, but it's a journey that we commit to embark on, right? And so he continues in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who then let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind and if you think differently about anything this too God will reveal to you only let us hold fast to what we have attained once again there's a lot of this journey language we are looking forward to the prize ahead and we are straining and reaching for it right and he says this one thing I do okay he's talking about doing something here um, but it's different than anything else that's been suggested right it's different than what the Judaizers are saying He's just saying, I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to lean in and strain towards Christ and make that my number one priority. Make Christ my number one accomplishment, my number one uh, accolade, whatever it might be. Christ is the main treasure that I want to fixate my life on, right? I want to delight in grace, delight in grace, delight in grace, right? To rejoice in this gift that God has given us. One scholar said it this way, the grace of God furnishes the highest motive. It is the Christian's bounden duty to press on always in persecution, in prison, and pandemic in the Christian race because Christ has first called us. What he's doing is he's fixating his eyes on the end, right? The ultimate prize, the ultimate treasure, whereas other people are trying to look towards what they've accomplished, uh, what they've done. He's forgetting everything that's behind, right? And he's fixating on the one thing that actually matters, the one thing that bears any impact on his salvation. And he's inviting us to do the same, right? To fixate our eyes on the finish line. And another uh, scholar said it this way, let there be no falling back. Let us, at each point in our Christian course, maintain and walk according to that degree of grace at which we arrived. Let us hold fast to what we have attained. And so what have we attained? Grace. We've attained Christ. We've, we've been given this gift. And I know it sounds kind of like a broken record, but I hope you're getting the point. We've received grace, and therefore we are invited to delight in such grace. In, uh, in verse 17, he continues. 
Brothers and sisters, join in, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us, right? And so here in this moment, he is encouraging them, don't imitate the Judaizers. Please don't. Imitate me and how it is that I'm carrying myself. Imitate what I am doing. To forsake, and what Paul is doing is he's forsaking any claim to legal righteousness. And he's seeking that righteousness, which is through faith of Christ, right? To know Christ, to win Christ, to press ever forward, to obtain the prize. And there's this idea, there's this sense of, hey, you need community to do this, right? Uh, to imitate someone else, you need to see someone else. And so Paul is commenting on the fact that we have to do this together. You guys have to forget what it is that the Judaizers are doing, and you have to imitate me. He continues and wraps up in verse 18. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. So here, uh, scholars believe that uh, Paul is referencing two groups of people, uh, these enemies of the cross, and one of those are the Judaizers, and the second one is just people who are kind of being hypocritical, right? And he's, what he's trying to invite them to consider is don't imitate them. Don't imitate them. In fact, he even goes as far as drawing very sharp contrasts uh, in this warning. He says, uh, their end is destruction. And ours is citizenship in heaven with Christ. So please, imitate me. Live by grace and faith alone. They look to temporary earthly things. You know, their God is their belly. So maybe they're following their appetites or their actions or their accolades or accomplishments, right? But we look heavenward and we delight and find joy in God's gift of grace to us. So imitate me, right? Their glory, their life will mount in shame. That's what they can expect. And ours is life resurrection, uh, resurrected life to the fullest, new bodies where our broken bodies of humility are done for. They are gone, but we will have a resurrected body and we will get to experience life eternal with Christ. So please, by all means, whatever you do, do not imitate them. Imitate me as I strain forward to what is ahead, leaving everything else behind. And he says this with tears in his eyes. And I think this is important to note because he's not only sad about what is happening uh, in this circumstance with Philippi, but I think Paul's really just broken and sad uh, for what is happening uh, with these different groups of people, especially with those uh, who he's calling out in this passage, right? And I think that should create an empathy and a sympathy within us to be broken for those who are trying to work their way into salvation, who are trying to do whatever they can to earn God's love, right? Or even those who think that they have to do that. But Paul is saying something that's totally different here. It's totally freeing and should give us space to rejoice. So he says it with tears in his eyes because he's mourning for these people and he invites them to imitate him that we may fix our eyes on Jesus and rejoice, caro, because of the gift of grace given to us. Caris, right? And that's the encouragement that Paul offers in Philippians chapter 3. And I think it's really easy to become tempted um, after reading a chapter like this. The temptation now is to turn a journey of joy into a journey of work. Like I know sometimes when I see a, a an, an awesome sermon, or if I read an awesome book, I close it, and I'm just like, well, I have a lot of work to do. Like, I gotta whip myself into shape. I have to do all of these things, but remember, that's not our task at hand. That's what the Judaizers would do, right? Faith, grace, and work, but that's not our task at hand. Our task is much more simple, to delight in the grace of God, to allow such grace to enable us to participate in death and in the death and resurrection of God. And I want to share a metaphor that I think uh, 
provides a lot of clarity for what this might look like in our lives. Theologian C.S. Lewis, he's a storyteller, wrote the Narnia books. Uh, He wrote this book called Mere Christianity, and he sums this up pretty well in a metaphor that he shares, and this is it. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house and all of its brokenness. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were becoming, being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The gift that God gives us, grace, right? Which causes Paul to say, rejoice, delight in grace, is the very thing that will transform us. It is the very thing that God will use to shape our hearts and our minds and our lives. Therefore, we boast not in any of our doings, not in any of our accomplishments, nothing, because we know they all add up to a big fat zero, right? All of it is worthless. Rather, we boast in Christ. We let God in to do God's work, and we boast in God's work, knowing that God is creating something new within us. And so therefore, we rejoice. We celebrate. I don't have a confetti cannon today, but this is where we pop the confetti cannon because we celebrate the good work that God is doing and the good gift that God has given us, and therefore we rejoice. And you guys know me. You know I like to kind of end the sermon with some application points. And so uh, I, better, I like to call it an invitation because I think Scripture invites us and God invites us to do a lot of things. Um, simply to respond and to rejoice to grace. And so three different ways that I think uh, we can rejoice uh, in grace, right, uh, are as follows. The first thing, forget what lies uh, lies behind and press on. Forget what lies behind and press on. Day in and day out, walk with the finish line in mind. Walk towards Christ in all things. Invite him in to do his work and yield to him. Just fixate your mind on grace. Uh, C.S. Lewis has another quote that I really like. Uh, It says this, If we only have the will to walk, then God is pleased with our stumbles. We don't have to get it perfect, right? That's why it's a a gift of grace for, you know, those times that we'll mess up, right? But if only we have the will to walk, right? If only we have the will to forget what lies behind and just press on for the prize that awaits us. And while we do that, we are also invited to rejoice regularly. You see, uh, it's never Jesus and. It's just Jesus. The Judaizers said it was Jesus and works, but it's just Jesus. There's uh, an author who titled a book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Like, there's nothing that we need to add to the equation. Jesus is the whole of the equation. Jesus is the treasure. He's our one aspiration. That is it. Everything else is rubbish. So just rejoice. Celebrate. In the middle of anything that we could have going on in life, we have the ability to rejoice and celebrate. And I would even go as far to say that the very objective of the church and of Scripture is to help people know to rejoice in and to enjoy Jesus. And so I invite you into that. In fact, um, we get further encouragement from this letter from prison, and I'm not talking about uh, the letter of Philippians, but I'm actually talking about this letter that I found in Kensington. Uh, Near the end of it, um, this person actually includes a scripture reference, which I think um, sums up this step very well. So I'm going to share it with you. It is from Matthew 11, uh, 28 to 30, and it says this. Come to me, all you who are tired and weary, and I will give you rest. Because what I ask of you is easy, and it leads to life, and that life is forever. It's a matter of forgetting what is behind and pressing on ahead and just coming to Jesus and delighting in his gift and in his presence. And the last thing that I think we are invited to consider is to journey with community. 
The act of imitation is an act of community, right? We are looking at someone and we're replicating what they're doing because we trust them and believe uh, in what they're doing. And so that's what Paul's inviting the church to do for him, saying, imitate me, right? Because let's be honest, uh, sometimes life is a little hard and challenging. Uh, we don't, you know, we might not feel like forgetting what lies ahead and running for it. Uh, we might not be moved to do that, right? Um, sometimes we need people to help guide us in these different seasons. Y'all, if, uh, if people imitated me during this quarantine, they would have moments of grouchiness, uh, stress, frustration, anxiety, and moments where they eat way too many snacks out of the pantry, right? Uh, I know some of you are there with me. Uh, we can get through this. Um, so what we need is this community to journey alongside us, to journey with us, people that we trust and care about, that we know who care about us, uh, that in those seasons where we just feel defeated, right, like the church in Philippi, we have someone who will journey with us. We have someone um, that we can imitate uh, and someone who will help us get through it, right? And so we need community to remind us of our ability to rejoice in the midst of deep pain. And I would say, once again, that's what the, the letter to the church in Philippi is intended to do. This is our journey to joy. Our journey of rejoicing and delighting in the grace of God. The fruit of such a journey is life everlasting. And what more joy can we have, right? What we're going to do is I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing a song called Christ is Enough. And as we sing, I invite you to consider what is it that you are tempted to add to the equation? Like the Judaizers, what, what do you feel obligated that you have to do in order to earn God's love? What is it that you feel like you have to do um, to count to make your life worthwhile? And what I want to invite you to do during that song as you sing um, or as you listen is to just lay those things down to give them to God, to not worry about having to maintain those things, and simply accept a gospel of grace and faith. So I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we'll sing together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, hmm, we have so many reasons to sing. There's not many communities in the world that could look uh, horrible situations in the face and say that. But I believe and I profess that we are one of those communities that can. And so I thank you that you meet us in our pain, that you meet us in our anxiety, that you bring life out of death, and that you made a way. And there's nothing else that we have to do except delight in the gift that you give us. And we know that that gift transforms us and makes us new, and so we pray um, today, that if we find anything in our life that uh, intrudes on that, that if we find anything in our life that interferes with our ability to accept that gift that we just laid down, that we just delight in your grace. God, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's sing the song together.
No turning back. No turning back. That is our prayer. That we'd forget whatever is behind and press on to the prize of Christ, to our true treasure, uh, and that we would delight in his grace. Gosh, we appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, We invite you this Tuesday at noon. We have Overtime, uh, which is online on our website and on our Facebook page. If you have questions about the sermon or anything that you'd like to talk about further, uh, you can go ahead and email us at overtime at clcfamily.church, and we would love to talk about that on our podcast on Tuesday. And then at Wednesday night on our Facebook page as well and the website, we have a cow devotional at 630 uh, for you guys. We hope you will tune in with us then. And if we could do anything for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. You can email us at info at clcfamily.church. But we love you guys. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you very soon. Take care.